Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Grant Armstrong. I am one of the pastors at Glen Ellen Bible Church here. Uh, I want to welcome you. If we haven't met, I'd love to connect at some point, whether it's between services or during the week. Uh, we believe one of the primary means by which we grow in our Christ-likeness, grow as a disciple, is through relationship. And so we try to infuse relationship into all parts of our church experience, and that includes uh, as pastors spending time with you, getting to know you, uh, and caring for you. Of course, we hope that the outcome of this would be that you feel quickly at home here. As Kelly mentioned, our goal is for you to belong or feel a sense of belonging in this place as you kind of lean in and spend more time with our community. I'm glad to be back in the pulpit uh, on the platform this morning. Last weekend, I was in North Carolina and I was doing a wedding, but it was outside. It was windy. There's ambulances. Uh, I'd spent all this time on my hair and it just all went, you know. So, um, no, just kidding. I mean, I did have to put it up and that was annoying, but whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good to be back with you guys this morning. Uh, as I was preparing this week, I, I had this question that kept going through my head. Hey, have you ever had a time in your life where you really wanted God to show up? Or maybe you were looking for some kind of evidence of God, looking for that sign. Most of us at some point have had this kind of God, if you're real moment. And I'm guessing just by the fact that you're sitting in a church building on a Sunday morning that you've had at least once or twice where you felt God, it would be helpful if I sensed you in a really personal, real way. Well, maybe you weren't doubting God's existence. Maybe you just needed his comfort in a challenging moment. You wanted to know that he was aware of your situation, that he was at work in whatever you were facing. I had my own moment like that this week. I got a call from a family member, and it's the kind of call you never really want to receive. They had just gotten word from the doctor and pending the test results, we were waiting to hear how bad this disease was, how far along was this. But we had to just sit and wait. Sit in the unknown, let our brains just race and think about all the possibilities, becoming fully aware that we are not in control. There's nothing we could do to manage the outcome. Honestly, I didn't know that I was searching for God's comfort in that moment. I didn't realize how heavy everything was weighing on me. For better or worse, in those moments, I tend to just put my head down, take on more work, and stay busy so I don't stay aware of kind of where my heart's at. So I didn't even realize that I was doing this whole thing until this moment where another pastor on staff happened to be on the same day as this family member's test results came and said, hey, the Lord prompted me to pray for your family this morning. But what caught my attention was the fact that I hadn't shared with anybody else on staff about the situation. I was being kind of private, carrying this burden. And the Lord prompted this pastor, even in that season, to share with me that he was praying for my family. God knew I felt God saying in that, sec uh, that moment, I see you, I'm here with you. So even though it was a surprise to us, even though my family felt like there's a lot of unknowns, my heart was at peace because I felt God saying, I know, this isn't a surprise to me. Now, some of us 
in these moments where we're looking for some kind of advice or direction or insight, pick up our Bible, flip to a random page. All right. And we hope that God shows up. We hope that he says something of comfort, something that encourages us. Now, I don't necessarily uh, advocate for that as a spiritual discipline of yours, but sometimes, more often, actually, what surprises me, more often than I would expect, God does speak in those moments. He comforts us. Well, this is not unlike what was happening in Acts chapter 8. You see, there is this uh, Ethiopian eunuch who is returning to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. He was just up there worshiping at the Jewish temple. And what's a little bit unique is that uh, eunuchs were not allowed to go inside the temple, right? They weren't considered complete bodies, so there's all kinds of other reasons, but they were kept out of the temple. Certainly, he felt on the outside. The irony is that this eunuch was on the inner circle of the queen of Ethiopia, Right? He had access to all the greatest resources. In fact, he oversaw all the treasures and finances of the Ethiopian kingdom. So he's living in this tension. He's traveling down this road, and he's riding in a chariot, the executive private jet of the day. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit prompts this Christ follower, Philip, to go down to the road and when Philip gets there, he's running alongside the chariot, which I wouldn't want to try to interpret the Bible while I'm running, but he, Philip overhears this eunuch reading from the Old Testament. And Philip asks a question, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian replies in this kind of summary, says, of course not. Nobody has explained it to me. I think that the eunuch was searching. I think he was reading through the Old Testament I mean, he didn't know it was the Old Testament then, but I think he was reading through the Scriptures, looking for something, searching, maybe feeling a little confused. Maybe that's how we feel, reading the Bible, hoping that something makes sense, that something stands out to show us that God is real. Again, at the prompting of the Spirit, Philip offers to explain the text to the man. Philip unpacks the, the letter the eunuch is so moved that at the first sign of water, he stops the chariot and asks to be baptized. Now, based on that, we know whatever he got, whatever sign he got, whatever comfort he received was so compelling that in that moment, he decided to go all in. It was exactly what he was looking for. That God showed up to the man who was searching who was asking questions, and God worked in this really personal way by sending Philip at the right time to the right place to help the Ethiopian eunuch understand and experience the Lord's comfort. Well, as it turns out, what the eunuch was reading is the text that we'll be looking at this morning. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8 is what the eunuch was reading aloud. He said, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, where his life was taken from this earth? Now those lines there, those are pulled directly from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a recording of a prophecy that was given to the Israelite people through the prophet of Isaiah. 
And if you remember some of the earlier sermons in the series, the first part of the book is a lot of judgment. Essentially, the Israelites weren't placing their trust in God. They were looking to other things to kind of care for them. And so uh, God's talking about the outcomes of what placing trust in something else would be. Well, at this point, the text is taking a turn, and it's intended to give the audience hope. There's a long discussion about suffering within this chapter, and the end says that there will be a reward for the suffering, that the person who goes through that suffering will receive a portion among the great, spoils to be divided with the strong. Now, there's a lot that can be said about chapter 53. In fact, there are lots and lots of books written on that chapter specifically because this section is part of what's called the suffering song or the servant songs. And when we read it, if you go home and read all of chapter 53, you might think like I did, this could be in the New Testament. In fact, the first time I listened to it in prep for the sermon, it was on my phone in my truck. I thought Paul could have written this. See, it sounds like this poetic description of Jesus' life, his final days on earth. People often call this part of Isaiah the fifth gospel or call him the fifth evangelist. Remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels? Well, Isaiah's message is so clearly gospel-centered that people say, oh, maybe this is the fifth gospel. It's the gospel of the Old Testament. So that begs the question, what did the eunuch hear in chapter 53 that moved him so deeply? What did he see or feel that compelled him to get baptized right then and right there? Now, I'm sure it could have been a lot of different things. Philip probably could have spent hours unpacking chapter 53. But when I read through the text, there was three things that stood out to me, the three things that if I was in Philip's shoes, I would have pointed out to the eunuch. The first is the, the text affirms that God is very real. The second is that God has control. The third thing is that we can experience the fact that God will go to great lengths to care for us and offer us his comfort. Now, reading through the prophecy in entirety, we can get lost in some of the details and the nuance. So in broad brush jokes, I'll paint a picture of it before we jump into some of the specific verses. The prophecy begins with a character who is described as God's servant. And this servant will be exalted and honored even by kings. But this servant will also be subjected to humiliation, suffering, treated like an outcast. He'll take on the burden of suffering for the sake of, in fact, uh, because of humanity's sin. Others will assume that that suffering is because of his own sin. He must have done something wrong to be the recipient of that kind of suffering. All of this would be the will of God. And the servant would function like a guilt offering. He would suffer and endure without any sort of complaint. He'd be killed. He'd be buried. But in the end, he would see the positive results, the outcome of his suffering, and he'd be vindicated by God. Well, at the time, when Isaiah was written, and even in the New Testament period, the Jewish people actually thought, they believed that this passage was most likely describing them as a people group. You see, if you remember the Abrahamic covenant that was made long before between God and the Jewish people was this contract that through them, God would bless all nations. 
And the religious leaders at the time thought that this gave a pretty good explanation of why they had experienced so much suffering, so much oppression in their people's history. It also was intended to give them this sense of hope and comfort. They read at the end that they would have a portion among the great, that spoils would be divided with the strong. What many did not think then, and even today actually, is that this passage was describing Jesus. The religious leaders actually intended for Jesus' death to discredit him as the Messiah. There's no way a Messiah would die. And more than likely, this passage, until Jesus uses it to identify himself, was probably not considered as referencing an individual as the future Messiah. In Luke 22, verse 37, Jesus references Isaiah 53:12. He says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. That was part of what got the religious leaders of the day so stirred up that Jesus was claiming that he was the one who was fulfilling the prophecy. And when we dig into the details, to us it can seem so clear. Jesus obviously fits this prediction perfectly. So here's some examples. These are ones I circled in my Bible. Maybe you'd want to do the same because they stood out so strong. Chapter 53, verse 7. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. If you remember in Matthew 15, Jesus standing before essentially judges multiple times refuses to defend himself. When he's accused, he stays entirely silent. 53.8 goes on, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Nobody stood up for Jesus. His followers deserted him. The crowds turned against him and protested. Liars testified against him. 53.9 says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. If you remember, Matthew 15, in the uh, last half of that chapter, that Jesus was hung on a cross between two thieves, two criminals, and yet he was buried and taken down and put in the tomb of a rich man. Now, these words that Isaiah spoke, at least as we have them, were written down more than 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. The complexity and the fulfillment of these predictions adds enormous credibility to the claims of the Old and the New Testament, primarily that God is real. You see, this is not like a weatherman prediction where I just poke my head out the door, hey, there's clouds, guys, it's probably gonna rain today. today. There's so many layers to what's being predicted here. And if I wanted people to believe that I could tell the future, I wouldn't say some ultra-complex prediction to try and prove it, unless I really could see what the future held. Well, not long ago, I was talking to a friend. He was telling me what he thought about God. He put it this way. <clears throat> I'm not sure that I'm ready to fully believe in all of Christianity. But there have been too many potential God moments in my life for it to be a coincidence. He went on to explain that he tries to think about things in a scientific manner. He said, you can explain away one or two events as random, 
But when they keep happening, the care, the situation, the patterns, they all seem so specific, too personal for it to just be a coincidence. There's too much smoke for there not to be some kind of fire. The specificity of prediction, the fulfillment of those predictions offer us strong evidence of God's existence. And this morning, we can have confidence, just like the eunuch did, that God is very, very real. But can you imagine the eunuch sitting there, connecting the dots, learning that the Jesus of Nazareth is who he said he is, realizing that this Jesus was the Son of God and that he came to establish a new kind of kingdom. I think this is when Philip looks at him and says, it gets even better. Because not only does chapter 3 prove that God is real, it demonstrates that God has control. The chapters immediately following 53 begin to outline who gets to be included in this whole kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. Who will be saved by the work of this suffering servant? We learn that childless, childless women, they're included. The poor, the needy, this kingdom's for them. Chapter 56 says the foreigner and the eunuch get to be part of this kingdom. Imagine hearing that, sitting there as the eunuch, knowing that there is a place for even him. I think that's what sealed the deal. Can you imagine learning about how Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy written 700 years ago, and all of a sudden you hear specifically that you're an intended recipient? Now, I guess that's when he says, stop the chariot now, I'm all in, let's do this thing. I want to be baptized. And it's kind of like this weird multiverse experience because I'm convinced that when God gave this prophecy to Isaiah so long ago, he included that line about eunuchs for the exact moment on the road from Jerusalem that he knew an Ethiopian eunuch would be traveling that day, searching the scriptures, looking for some sign of God, some understanding of what's out there. And God, in his sovereignty, prompted Philip at just the right time to head to the same road and stumble upon a man who God was caring for. That's a final point I would make about this, that both passages in Isaiah and Acts reveal the breadth and the depth of God's love. Isaiah 53 makes plain that Jesus himself will be the one who endures pain and punishment that you and I have both caused and earned. He didn't just wipe it all away and say, hey, we can get on with things. Instead, he stepped into those experiences of suffering. He endured on our behalf. 53.5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It was through the suffering that Jesus experienced that we are saved. His humiliation, being misunderstood, accused, injustice, experiencing excruciating physical pain, betrayal, being deserted. And Jesus took on all of that willingly so that those things, they would not define our story, that they would not have the final say over our life or our experiences. 53.11 says, he will justify many, he'll bear their iniquities. 
12 goes on to say, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We get to see that God will leverage everything at his disposal to rescue us from sin. Now, Isaiah 53 helps us to see that God will go to great lengths to rescue humanity, to care for humanity. But the eunuch's experience in Acts 8 helps us to see that it'll go to incredible lengths to care for you specifically. Sometimes when I think about God's love, I consider it in mostly a generic way. It's easy for me to operate thinking Jesus has a general posture towards all people that he loves us. And while this is not untrue, I think he does love all people. I don't think it adequately describes his love. It doesn't quite go far enough because God doesn't simply love all humans. He loves you. He loves me. He loves the person sitting next to you. He loves all of us in a very specific sense. And long before we have a need or face a crisis, from the beginning of creation, God already knew. He already knew what we would face and he set a plan in motion to care for you in the exact moment that you need it. Yes, God is rescuing us from sin broadly and he's also with you uniquely when you are facing crisis or have need. His arms are wide open for all people and he wraps them tightly around you, pulling you in close for you to feel his love. Now, based on all of this, I don't think in this side of life that God's primary concern is the removal of pain or creating a comfortable space for us. Pain-free living isn't the highest state of existence. The place that God is leading us, what he wants for us is Christ-likeness, holiness, to bring freedom from the clutches of sin. And we know while sin and Satan are still permitted to infect the earth, we won't see the end of all hardship and pain. But if you're facing that pain this morning, if you're needing God to comfort you, to tell you that he's here with you, he sees you, that he's not surprised by what you're going through, you can speak that to him. You can share with him the burden that's on your heart. Just as Aaron and Kelly said, the Psalms represent for us the full range of human emotions that God wants to know exactly what you're feeling and what you're going through. I'd encourage you to share with him your distress, your grief, all the things you're feeling and ask him to be present. Ask for comfort. Ask him for his care because I'm confident that God does care and he is eager to comfort you. Now, it might not come from writing in the sky or some crazy man running down Main Street alongside your car trying to preach. It might just be small. Maybe it's a hug from a friend, a note from a spouse, a song on the radio. But God does care. He is with you. But maybe this is the first time you've heard this type of news, that Jesus was predicted that he fulfilled that prophecy and he died in order to rescue you from your sins. Well, if this is the good news that you've heard for the first time or you've heard it before and you're considering and you have something inside of you that wants to be saved, rescued, you want to experience that comfort, give voice to that now. You can pray even as you're sitting in your seat while I'm speaking, asking God to come and be with you. 
See, instead of Jesus removing all pain, I see Jesus giving us an example of how to, how to endure pain and suffering. When we face injustice, we can trust that God will bring justice. When we face the unknown, we can feel confident. God knows. When we feel all alone, we can know that God is with us. Instead of lashing out at others, being defensive, living out of our pain, we can humbly endure pursuing connection and care with God to help us persevere. And see, following Jesus, it's not this formula to remove discomfort or pain from our lives. Following Jesus is a formula for enduring suffering well. It's a formula that reminds us we can endure because Jesus has gone before us. It's a formula that tells us that suffering won't be wasted, that God will vindicate us and he will use that suffering to make us holy. It's a formula that says pain and suffering won't have the final word. That one day we'll stand as conquerors trampling over sin, holding hands, singing loudly, death, where is your sting? Suffering moments aren't the only times we want to learn and trust in God. You see, the playoffs are probably not the best time to try to learn a new skill. We can grow in our confidence in God's goodness by reflecting on Scripture and these truths regularly. And that deeper faithfulness, that confidence in God is not only for us because as we grow stronger in our faith, it benefits our community. A community that's filled with people of deep faith are able to care for one another when suffering hits. We can be that type of community. We can show up when others are in pain. You might be God's loving touch for somebody that's hurting. We can rally around those, care for them who are feeling crushed. You can be a light that reminds others God is here even when your world looks void and dark. We know people in our midst, in our community even now, who are hurting, who are facing loss, facing unknowns, who are grieving deeply. Now, my encouragement to you is to lean in, be present with them. Simply being near can serve the reminder that they need, that God cares for them, that Jesus loves them, that they will make it through the suffering. If you're in the room this morning, you're dealing with suffering or pain or facing the unknown and you're saying, God, I need your help. God, what do I do? God, will you please show up? I'd love to pray with you. We're only gonna sing one song after this, but I'll be down front, Aaron will be down front. Come on forward, we'll pray with you. If there's a bunch of people down here and you see them, just come up and pray for them, right? We're a community who can pray and care for one another. If you want your faith renewed or you want faith for the first time, come forward and ask God, I promise you that he will show up. Let's be sure to open our hearts to be honest with God. Tell him what we need in these next moments. Will you sing with me?